Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You. We praise You that no matter what's going on in our lives personally, familially, Lord, job, financial struggles, um, Lord, spiritual struggles, emotional struggles, no matter what's happening in our country, Lord, we know that You are in control of all things. And that is not just a theological statement that we make. It's something that we know and we're convinced of in our hearts that brings great comfort and encouragement to us because Your Word tells us so. And I pray that we would, Lord, lean not upon our own understanding as we watch even what's taking place in our country, but that we would rest upon You and trust in You and in Your Word. Father, we do pray for those who are hurting all across our nation, for the division, the hatred, the rivalries going back and forth between people and entities, uh, Lord, in our country. Father, we are a nation that has turned its back on You. And I pray that we would remember that ultimately true meaning and fulfillment comes by making things right with You, our Creator. For You have existed, uh, created us to exist for Your glory, to enjoy You as our Creator, and yet we've gone away from that. And we go away from our purpose of glorifying You and enjoying You. Lord, all kinds of problems arise from that and flow from that. And so, Lord, help us. And even this morning, we understand that when we open up Your Word, You speak. And so, Father, speak to us. Help us to be people who are not being deluded by the things of this world, by the culture around us, by the world around us, but help us to be people who are being shaped and informed by Your Word through the words of our Lord Jesus here in Mark chapter 10. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we've been spending some time in this passage talking about marriage, remarriage, and divorce through God's eyes. And that's really what matters, right? At the end of the day, what matters is what does God think about these issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage? And um, we have seen here in this passage, if you've listened to the last couple of messages, first of all, the, the strategic setting that Jesus here has some strong words for the, the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees of his day, who come to entrap him. And it's, they, come to, they come to entrap our Lord during a very strategic time. Okay? Mark indicates to us, as we've seen already, that this happened, this confrontation happened with our Lord during the time that he with his disciples made his way south toward Jerusalem for the events of Passion Week that are going to be what Mark chapters 11 through 16 focus upon. So Jesus is making his way through Judea, the region of Judea, to Jerusalem for Passion Week. And it was sometime during those six months or so that he's in Judea that the Pharisees come challenging Jesus on the issue of marriage and divorce. And it's no coincidence that they do it here in this area that most believe was this area known as Perea in the region of Judea because this is really the epicenter of the great soap opera that took place surrounding the adulterous affair by the, a ruler by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas ruled over this area of Perea. And if you remember Herod Antipas from Mark chapter 6, he was the guy that committed adultery with the wife of his brother Philip, Herodias. In fact, he even went on to marry her. And because of that, John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, or John the Baptist, winds up in jail and eventually even beheaded at the request of Herodias' wicked daughter who dances before Herod Antipas and all of his wicked friends. And he basically offers, us, offers her up to half his kingdom and she requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is the, the epicenter of that activity. 
Herod Antipas is the ruler over this particular area. So these religious leaders know this as they come to Jesus. That this is the backyard of Herod Antipas as they seek to entrap our Lord. They know that this is a lightning rod issue, not only culturally at that, in that day, but also there in particular in that area because of everything that happened um, with Herod Antipas and Herodias, the wife of his brother. At the time, the mood of the age, as we've talked about, was this idea of free divorce. That was the popular view, that you could divorce your wife, if you were a Jewish man, on virtually any grounds, any grounds whatsoever. We've talked about some of that. It was not much different than today, where even today we've taken it a step further to this idea here, in the, specifically in the state of California, of no-fault divorce. No fault divorce, where it's not necessary to bring any facts to the table if you want to leave your spouse. No reasons given, simply no reasons given to prove the fact that you have grounds to leave your spouse. Just a demand for divorce is sufficient. In fact, it's easier to get out of your marriage these days than it is to get out of your cell phone service, right? I mean, you can get out of your marriage easier than it is to get out of your phone plan, okay? So these religious leaders were in a very similar culture. Divorce on any grounds for anybody that wanted to leave their spouse. This is why, brothers and sisters, given even our, the cultural trends of today, this is so important and applicable for us today. What Jesus says here, and thirdly, the gracious teaching in verses 3 through 9. We've seen the strategic setting, the cunning interrogation, that they come to him wanting to entrap him. And now in verses 3 through 9, we've been looking at the gracious teaching of our Lord. Where the Lord confronts these religious leaders on their sinful, passive, lackadaisical approach to marriage and divorce. Jesus here uses two primary arguments to confront the twisted mentality and practice of these religious leaders. We saw the first one last week. Argument number one was from Scripture. From Scripture in verses 3 through 5. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And that reference to Moses is a reference to what Moses had written. The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. What did Moses command you? Essentially what Jesus says here is, What does, Jesus, what does God say? Let's get back to Scripture, guys. Let's get back to Scripture. And what we see here, and we learned last week, is that our Lord says essentially, stop listening to the culture around you guys. Stop listening to the man-made traditions and interpretations of your rabbis. Stop listening essentially even to the way that you feel in order to justify free divorce on any grounds whatsoever. What matters is, what does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? Say, what does Moses say? Let's get back to what he says, to what God says. At the end of the day, that's what matters most even for us, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I keep very much informed with so many of the movements that are taking place in our country, the ideological movements. And brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you that even movements that might emphasize one good thing, that might be even a biblical thing, doesn't make a particular movement something that we should jump on the bandwagon on. We have to take everything through the grid of Holy Scripture. 
Everything through what God says. And that's essentially what our Lord Jesus does here. He says, argument number one is from Scripture. What does my Father say? And take your view, religious leaders, through the grid of what Moses wrote. Second argument that I want us to focus on this morning is, argument number two is from the beginning. An argument from the beginning. From God's original design. And under this particular argument, Jesus gives at least four characteristics of what God made marriage to be from the beginning. Okay? These are going to go under this argument number two. Four different characteristics of what God made marriage to be. And I want to just forewarn you, okay, that these are so countercultural to what you see in our country today. Totally countercultural. The vast majority of Americans in our country would not agree with the following four characteristics of what God designed marriage to be. And you know what? That's okay with me. But what God says stands no matter what. First of all, I want you to notice that God in the beginning made marriage to be monogamous. Monogamous. Meaning that marriage involves a partnership with one person. With one person. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a reference, if you notice, made them male and female is in all caps. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it speaks of God having created male and female in His image, according to His likeness. This is pre-fall, pre-the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. So this is a reference to Genesis 1, 27. So question for us. What was God's design for marriage pre-fall in the beginning? This is so important for us to ask ourselves because so much, so much of the arguments surrounding the entities of marriage and family today center on these being primitive categories, outdated categories of marriage and family. Social constructs, structures that have evolved in human history. That's what marriage and family is, the liberals say. Those who are anti-God, those who don't look to Scripture to shape their views on things. But now, times have changed. We are much more advanced as a civilization. There's been so many changes taking place historically. People don't think the same way as before. We are now in times of progressive mentality. It's all about being progressive. And thus we need to break from the norms that have been so oppressive over the history of humanity. These are just themes that you hear in our culture. All you got to do is just watch the news. Watch the liberal media. Video after video communicating a lot of these things about being progressive. Well, you know what the Bible says about those things and that kind of mentality? Hogwash. Hogwash. It's ultimately about what God says and God's design from the beginning. No matter how much times have changed, what God says stands. And first and foremost, in the beginning... God designed marriage to be monogamous, meaning a partnership with one person, but not just any person. Not just any person. Please look at verse 6 with me. 
It's marriage between a male and a female. A male and a female. Equally made in the image of God. Those nouns, by the way, in verse 6, male and female are singular. In other words, God uniquely tailored a man with, listen to me, male physical traits and characteristics. A masculine man, not a feminine man. And he designed a woman with female physical traits. With female physical characteristics. She is feminine. She is feminine. And it's precisely this design of maleness and femaleness that allows for procreation. For them to be able, as a fruit of intimacy, to be able to procreate, to have babies, to have children. This was God's design. This one man and one woman God made perfectly compatible His masculinity complements her femininity and her femininity perfectly complements his masculinity. God designed it this way. And they are biologically complementary to one another. Their physical traits, like a puzzle, are compatible. And anything less or anything else than this right here is unnatural and less than human. As one pastor has written... Quote, God created only two humans, a man and a woman, not a group of males and females who could configure as they pleased or switch partners as it suited them, end quote. Truth. Preach it. Yes. Please don't miss the basic and obvious reality, brothers and sisters. God created, designed the first marriage to be between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship. He did not create a male and a male or a female and a female. It's so basic. It's so foundational. It's so straightforward. But our culture has completely perverted and twisted that great reality. So clear. God is not a God of confusion. This is so clear. It's our sin and our human depravity that distorts everything that God has done to be good and perfect and beautiful and lovely and fulfilling and meaningful. What does this mean? It means this. God doesn't, does not, underline not, acknowledge nor approve of any other scenario, but only what he designed by his grace. One man, one woman. We don't have a right as creatures to recreate, redefine what he has established God, who is creator, who made us alone, sets the terms and conditions for we who live in his universe in the same way that you, in your home, set the terms and conditions for how you run your home. And nobody can just come in and tell you what to do in your own home, right? So basic. And yet this is God's universe. And people say, oh, no, I think times have changed. Social construct, marriage, family, things are different. We're no longer in the primitive stages of humanity, of human history. Listen, we don't have the luxury to think that way. There's this theological grid 
called the creator-creature distinction. We are creatures. God is creator. He sets the terms and conditions by, as defined in his word for these entities that are beautiful realities, beautiful, lovely gifts. And only as we carry out these things within his perfect design will we experience his good and perfect gifts. When we twist them, we suffer the consequences as a result of that. So, same-gender marriage is ruled out. Same-gender marriage is ruled out. Not only is a same-sex marriage a violation of God's design from the beginning, but hear me, it's outright rebellion against God's design from the beginning pre-fall. Pre-fall. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 tells us that one of the manifestations of God's wrath, God's judgment against people, is the fact that He gives them over to degrading passions. Degrading passions. And at the center of that list is homosexuality, which that passage calls unnatural. That men and women haven't abandoned the reality of God as Creator, abandoned the natural function of the woman, and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's what happens. We suffer the consequences of going away from God's design upon our own physical beings. The whole LGBTQ, etc., etc., plus movement, you know what that is? It's outright rebellion against God's design. Why? Because it perverts, distorts, twists, undermines God's good and perfect design. That's why. You and I need to be compassionate, by the way, towards those who are living their lives that way. We need to be compassionate because 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 11 tells us that such were some of us Prior to Jesus, such were some of us. Maybe some of us not in the area of homosexuality, but many other sins which equally damn us to eternal hell. Such were some of us, but we were washed, but we were sanctified, but we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We were there, brothers and sisters. Condemned were it not for the blood of Jesus the one who came to die and pay for sins on the cross, were it not for the fact that we turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, whereby we are reconciled to God, were it not for Jesus, we would be in the same place. So that should evoke compassion in us. But let me tell you this too. There is no virtue, and it isn't loving, to stay quiet about it. That's not compassionate. We need to speak the truth in love and call those things out in love. Jesus was the ultimate example of what? Grace and truth. If we're going to be Christ-like, we need to do, be, be about the same things. Grace and truth. When we understand the holiness of God, who He is in His infinite majesty and purity 
And moral uprightness and moral righteousness, the more that we understand Him and His holiness, the more that we can begin to identify at least one percentage point with how much massive, zealous, righteous indignation He has against sins like that, that go away from His divine design. Do you feel that when you see our culture? And how much this is being flaunted and thrown at us? So the LGBTQ movement is outright rebellion against God's perfect design, against this beautiful reality of marriage as monogamous between one man and one woman in a covenant, in a commitment with one another. Secondly, our Lord makes the point that marriage is a union. This is all under argument too. Secondly, marriage is a union. Look at verse 7. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Mm. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Please note in verse 9, who has joined them together? This, who brings marriages about ultimately that honor him? It is God who joined them together. Marriage is of God. It's not of man. I love that word there, joined in verse 9. Joined literally means to, to be yoked together to be fused or fastened together. might use some contemporary terminology, to be hitched together. Okay? It's got some negative connotations, so you, may, you probably don't want to think about that one a whole lot, right? But it's got this, this it's strong terminology that, I like this, that, you, that when you married your spouse and you stood before God in those witnesses and you culminated your marriage, you were literally glued together. You were glued together. Not just any glue, okay? This is crazy glue, all right? What is the strongest kind? Gorilla glue. You were fused together to be one. So think about this. What is marriage? Marriage is two people eventually coming out from under the protective umbrella of parental authority, and they are joined to one another by God in an indestructible bond or union with one another. Wow. So, I might be standing behind this pulpit right now in front of you, and my beautiful wife is about, what, 50, 60 yards away from me, right? You see two people, two different people, but in the eyes of God, truly, we are one person. We are one. We are fused together into this wonderful, wonderful union. So we are one. And if that's the case... If you and your spouse are in this union together, if you are one, then the way that we live should reflect that oneness. We should reflect that oneness in the way that we interact as married couples, in our marriage with our spouse. You know, recently we went on a, on a shopping date, as my wife calls these dates. And, you know, I hate shopping. I don't know about you guys. I'm not a big shopper, but it just, what, what matters most to me is just being with her. Okay, so we went on the shopping date, and before the we went out and got everything that we needed for that week, we snuck in a, a breakfast together at Lancers nearby here. Hey, there's outdoor patio um, 
breakfast, so we enjoyed that. And, you know, we're just there talking, you know, oblivious to anyone around us, frankly. There's other people there coming and going and all of that. But we're just focused on each other. It's hard to get in a meal these days, as many of you know, because you can't really go to a whole lot of places. So we're there focused on each other and all of that. Aren't really paying attention to who's around, but eventually I could see this older gentleman cl- sitting close to us. He kept staring over at us, glaring and all of that. Eventually, this kind of got awkward a little bit, and eventually he got this. He got confidence to speak up, and he said something along the lines of, "Man, you guys are sitting so close together. My goodness, it's like you're all over each other." So, of course, saying it, laughing, you know. Okay, right? I guess we were, but we didn't even notice it. We didn't even notice. We're just having a good time getting to know one another, talking to one another. Eventually, obviously, after he said this, we started talking to him. Longtime Burbankian. His dad had a business here for a few decades, and then he took over the family business, and eventually he retired just a handful of years ago, and we invited him to church and all of that. But you know what, what struck me? People are always watching. And we do not live our lives before the eyes of men or women. We do not live our lives before people. We live our, our, our lives before the Lord, right? Before Him. That's what matters. But people are watching, and what an opportunity we have to show, to display the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that we show a functional oneness even as couples in marriage. To show people that marriage is joyful. Marriage can be fulfilling. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, you work through difficult things in your marriage throughout your own journey. But if you're in Christ and you are humbly walking before the Lord and you're seeking to be dependent upon Him and you're committed to working through your marriage by His grace and by the power of the Spirit of God, marriage can be a happy endeavor in this life, right? You're focused on the other person and focused on the glory of God. What an opportunity. Marriage is a fusing or a gluing of two lives into one. And can I just remind us, this is why immorality in all its forms is sin. Because immorality is a violation of our one flesh union, of our fusing together with our spouse. It's a violation of that. Adultery is sin against God, no matter what our culture, what our world says, no matter what the sophisticated yuppies on these talk show uh, shows say. Adultery is a sin before God because it breaks the bond, the marriage tie, the marriage union that you share with your spouse in the eyes of God. Adultery is sin. And if that's you this morning, you're committing adultery or entertaining adultery in your heart, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin to God. You need to come clean before the Lord. And you need to go and confess that to your spouse. And you need to get accountable. Is there forgiveness for adultery? Absolutely. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. But you must repent. You must turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, even entertaining infidelity in your heart, you need to be honest before the Lord. You don't recognize what it can do to your marriage. More importantly, what it's going to do to your relationship with God. This is why fornication 
Sex outside of marriage is sin against God. Because when you're intimate with someone outside of marriage, you are uniting yourself with that other person in a way that only belongs to that one spouse that God has for you in the future. If you're not married. In fact, to show you this, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 15, okay? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. Powerful passage that speaks to the importance of recognizing why we should be faithful. If we are in union with our spouse, if we are waiting as a single person for that person that God may bring to our lives, if it is His will, then we must walk in biblical contentment in our hearts, not be covetous in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Do you not know... Paul is writing to Christians here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, you're united to Jesus if you're a believer. You're in union with him. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That word prostitute, there is the word porne. It's a singular noun, porne, from which we get the word porneia, which refers to all kinds of sexual immorality. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. The sense is, God forbid it. May this never be the case. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6, 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid it. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the first marriage union that God brought between Adam and Eve. But by application, all marriages, we can say this, you become one flesh with your spouse. Look at verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. In light of this union with Christ, and in light of this union with your spouse, flee immorality. Imperative. Present tense imperative. Continually escape sexual immorality. Continually escape. Flee. Porneia. Look at verse 18. Every other sin that a man or woman commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. You see, there's a sense in which sexual sin affects you on a deeper level, on a level that no other sin touches you. Every other sin that a man or woman commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know? Notice the repetition, by the way. Look at verse uh, 15. Do you not know? Verse 16. Or do you not know? Verse 19. Or do you not know? It's almost like Paul is saying, Christians, let us reason together here. This is something that you ought to know. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, believer? whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 
So notice the threefold appeal there. Don't you know that you are in union with Christ? Therefore, don't run to sexual immorality. Don't you know that you are in union with your spouse? Don't run to sexual immorality. Don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You belong to God. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Therefore, don't commit sexual immorality. It couldn't be clearer. We need to realize that our bodies, brothers and sisters, belong to God and to our spouse. If you're married... And that they are to be used for God's glory, not for selfish self-gratification, according to the design of God. And let me remind us, in a time when intimacy has been so twisted and perverted by our culture, and there's such a distortion of intimacy, let me remind us that God is not against intimate pleasure. He's not against that. He's not against intimacy. In fact, he created it, but he created it to be enjoyed within the confines and context of marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that, intimacy is like like fire, right? Like fire that has great uses for cooking and warming us up and all of that. But fire outside of the parameters, unharnessed, is destructive. So it is with intimacy outside of marriage. It's destructive. It causes harm to us. You say, Pastor Kempis, I hear you, all of these things, but what about if I'm not married and I'm still waiting for the Lord to bring that spouse to my life? I really desire to be. What about if you are not married? Listen to me. The Bible calls you also to be a one-woman man and a one-man woman now, not later. Devoted to that future spouse until the Lord brings that spouse by His grace, if it is His will. And all of you who are single, unless you have the gift of singleness, which is a gift, by the way, somebody who feels very content in their singleness They feel very much like they just want to completely in an undistracted way serve the Lord. There is such a thing as as singleness, as a gift of God's grace. But unless you have that gift, you should be praying and thinking and preparing yourself as a single young woman, single young man to be married, to be the right kind of man, young man or woman who's going to attract the right kind of young man or woman. You should be prayerfully already preparing yourself that way. And part of that is having this, cultivating this heart of devotion and contentment before the Lord so that when you are married, it's still going to be a battle when you're married, but you're already well on your way to cultivating biblical contentment rather than a covetous heart that's always looking elsewhere, always discontent even in marriage, always looking for somebody who's better. Hear me, single person, if you are not cultivating that kind of heart of devotion and contentment right now, nothing magical just happens when you put a ring, guys, on somebody's finger. Or ladies, in the same way, when you declare a vow to a young man at the altar. Nothing magical just happens. You carry that, 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 that pornographic, covetous heart right into the marriage context now. Some people talk as if, well, as long as I, as, once I get married and all of that, now I'm going to have an outlet for intimacy. This sexual purity thing will never be an issue anymore. Eh, wrong. It will be an issue. 
at the very least, for most of us at the heart level, right? To be devoted to Christ and be devoted to our spouse. Listen, sexual lust, evil desire doesn't end because you have an outlet in marriage for intimacy. And so it begins now, single person. And all of us, married or not, should be cultivating this singular heart of devotion to Christ and to our future spouse. If God so desires you be married. People always ask, what's God's will for me? What's God's will for me? I wish that God would just pop his head from heaven and tell me this is my will for your life. And there are these explicit statements that answer that for us. All of scripture does in principle, but there are some explicit statements. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. In other words, your holiness, that you be set apart from sin for Christ's purposes. Your sanctification is the will of God, married or not. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, from sexual porneia. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the will of God for all of us. That we would be like Christ. That we would be set apart from sin and slaves of Christ. Christ is our master. No longer is sin our master if you're a believer. Hebrews 13.4 has these strong words for those who are married in particular. But for all of us, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Strong words. God's will is that we would hold marriage in honor, brothers and sisters. And this is so countercultural, isn't it? This is not what we see in our society. This is not what's being promoted. This is not what's being fostered in America at all. Amongst our young people, especially. In the music that we hear. In the, the videos that come out on social media. On what's going viral. The pornographic industry is massive. And it's grown even more during the quarantine. There's one further implication of our union. Obviously, on the one hand, that we would be truly set apart from sin and not walk in sexual immorality if we're in union with our spouse, if we're married. But there's another implication for this union that we have, this oneness that we share in marriage, and it's this. Are you, as a married couple, living as one? Are you living as one? Let me ask you this morning, as a married couple, are you fleshing out this oneness in the way that you live with one another, in the way that you share life with one another? There are so many couples, right? 
that we've known, maybe in your experience and in my experience as well, where the, that married couple is no more than just, just no more than just roommates, right? Hardly see each other, hardly communicate, hardly talk to one another. You're no more than just roommates. My hope and my prayer and my encouragement, my loving encouragement to you would be this. If that is you and that is your marriage, be honest about that before the Lord and seek God's help and seek discipleship in that area. Get connected to the church. Ask an older, mature, godly couple to come alongside of you guys and begin to meet with you and counsel you and speak the truth into your life. Where you could be honest about the struggles that you're having in your marriage. There should be a functional oneness that you're living out in your marriage. If there is an implication for marriage being a union between one man and one woman, is that we should, in our life, show that shared life in the way that we live. The way that we interact together. This means that in your thinking and mindset, in your thinking and mindset, you strive by God's grace to be of one mind, to be like-minded. And obviously, well, how does that happen? Time spent together, communication spent where you're interacting with one another, where you are learning to, to listen to one another, and especially for us men, that is so hard, isn't it? We're problem solvers. It's so hard for us just to sit there and be quiet and listen to the heart of our wives. That's a struggle for me. Let's, let's, let's put together the, the A, B, and C plan, honey. This is plan A, plan B, plan C, how we're going to solve your problem. No, just listen, hard-headed men. Right? Can you identify, brothers? Oh, man, you guys are all liars right now. I see how it is. Listening is hard, especially for men but for both sides and speaking up and being honest and not hiding things from your spouse is so important. If you're going to, to live out this oneness in your thinking and mindset, then it happens by godly communication, listening and opening up our hearts to sharing. There should be no secrets with your spouse. There should be nothing that you are not talking to your spouse about, especially struggles. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to be honest with one another. I think of marriage as, a, as just a, uh, it's a, a relationship where I can be 100% vulnerable with my wife in all aspects of that marriage. We got to be vulnerable with one another. In a sense, when you're with your spouse, you got to be able to put your heart on the table and say, honey, this is what's going on. I just want to share my heart with you. This is what's happening. Let's talk about that. Or I want to hear your heart. What is going on in your heart? Talk to me about this issue or that issue in your life. See, there needs to be a functional oneness if we are united to one another in the eyes of God. This does not mean you'll agree on everything or you won't ever have a difference of opinion on things. But it means this, that ultimately you'll come together on the most critical things and move in one direction together as one. As one. And that there'll be an ongoing working on that oneness as far as your thinking and mindset on various issues. So it means striving for shared thinking and mindset. Here's another one. If we're going to live out this union, this, this oneness, it means that in our finances and in our thinking about God's resources, we think as one and we strive by the grace of God for oneness. 
Now, I've talked to a handful of couples over the years who have separate bank accounts. I don't even get that one. I really don't. It's just my weakness, I'm sure. You know, this is my money, and this is his money. This is my money, and this is her money over here. Different bank accounts. It's not functional oneness in the area of finances or resources. Or maybe one spouse has a different philosophy altogether on spending so that there's like debt, reckless spending that is taking place, irresponsible spending. That's not oneness in the area of finances. So that's a critical area for us. And you guys know the testimony after testimony of, of marriages that have wound up in divorce. Why? Because of differences of handling of money. Because of debt. Right? So it's so important for us to live out this oneness in the area of the way that we think about finances and God's resources. Also, there should be functional oneness in our physical care for one another. Our physical care for one another. Such things, yes, as basic as meeting the needs of your wife physically, brothers. Providing for your family, beginning with your wife. Caring for her health. Caring for her physical needs. And vice versa, wives doing the same thing for your husband. Caring about his physical needs. Looking out for one another as far as physical care is so important to flesh out a functional oneness. And can I get into this touchy subject on the issue of physical care for one another? This would include the aspect of physical intimacy. Caring for one another and being one in the area of physical intimacy. Let me read to you what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5 says, okay? 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5. Actually, I'm going to pick it up from verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty, speaking of intimacy, within the confines of marriage only. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It goes back to that issue of of our union together, right? Spiritually, we are one. So therefore, verse 5, stop depriving one another. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again Hear this, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice that. Stop depriving one another in the area of intimacy. Why? Because of temptation. Because of testing. Because Satan will tempt you. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Sexual sin on the part of a husband or a wife is never excusable. It's never justifiable. We are responsible for our own individual decisions and choices before God. And first and foremost, our biblical contentment in God, first and foremost, so that we could never blame our spouse for, well, I did this because of you. Because you didn't fill in the blank. No, we're responsible for our own sin. But hear me, 
sinful neglect in this area on the part of one spouse or the other can lead to compromise in this area. It can. It can. At another church several years ago, I had a friend and... This friend and I were spending time having coffee one time, and he just started sharing some of his struggles. I asked him how he could, I could pray for him. He started sharing campus. I'm having all kinds of issues in the area of just purity and all of that, and he hadn't gotten into any details in that. But eventually, he told me, it's been three years, three years and counting since my wife and I had not been intimate together. Three years. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Eventually, we ended up getting him and his wife. I wasn't an elder at the time. We got the meeting with an elder and, and, and his wife, with this couple. And it turned out that it was a lot worse than we thought. He was fully, full-blown addicted to pornography. And she herself was committing adultery with her best friend's husband. And that had been going on for a while. And so in counseling, what we found out is that they were getting fulfillment, at least temporary fulfillment, somewhere else. And beloved, that's the reality in many cases. If you are neglecting that particular aspect of your marriage, it is very possible that you may be seeking fulfillment somewhere else. And you need to repent of that. If you don't know Christ, the first step is to come to Christ. Because the reality of it is, is you don't have the power to be able to even overcome those sins. You need to come to Jesus. That's why we all need Christ. And as believers, we don't move away from the gospel. We need Christ and we need his Holy Spirit to help us in that area. And so we need to confess that to the Lord. At the basic level of private sexual immorality. Maybe seeing things on, finding fulfillment on a screen somewhere. This is an issue for both men and women in marriages. Again, for nobody is, is sexual sin ever justifiable, ever to be explained away by blaming your spouse. But the reality of it is, is 1 Corinthians 7, 5 is here for a reason. Stop depriving one another. Unless you agree for a time, he says, for a, a time of devotion to prayer, right? And there are seasons of life where that is very necessary as married couples to do that. But unless there's agreement, don't deprive one another. Fulfill your loving duty to your spouse by the grace of God. And you know what? I, I understand that there are other, ex, other exacerbating factors that might be keeping one spouse or the other from wanting and running towards that. That's why discipleship is so important, brothers and sisters. Because it's when we sit down in front of another couple who is mature and godly and, and they're hearing us share the issues that we're having in this area or whatever area. They're able to tell you this is what's taking place. This is what we see in your life. Okay? And husband, the reason why your wife doesn't run towards that is because you don't ever communicate with her. You're not tender and gentle and affectionate toward her in the right kinds of ways. Or wife, the reason why he runs away from you in that aspect is because you're so disrespectful and you're always condescending and demeaning him before other people or before the kids or whatever. 
See, it's in counseling and getting into these situations, life-on-life discipleship, that we're able to discern by the grace of God those things. This is why marriage counseling and just discipleship, life-on-life investment into one another in the context of the local church, that's what discipleship is. It's so important for us, right? What other areas should we be living at this oneness? Our goals, our priorities as a family, right? Family, how to, how to raise the kids. And of course, the unifying factor is always the Word of God. We should be, in our marriages, functioning as one in the way that we raise the kids, pointing them to Jesus Christ through the pages of His Word. Not according to how we think. So we need to get on the same page and share that same mindset with one another in our marriage. Parenting, family, church life. Are you on the same page in functional oneness? Fleshing this union out as far as your perspective that the church is central to the life of your family for the glory of Christ. Are you on the same page? Because so oftentimes one spouse is totally committed, the other spouse is completely out of, the, out of that, right? And I'm not talking about a husband who's totally committed and the wife is home with the kids. No, that is your first ministry wives. Ministry flows out of your home to your husband and to your family, but ministry doesn't end there. And husbands, so oftentimes, we're running around doing all kinds of ministry, but we're neglecting the home, right? So where does ministry flow for, for, for the husband? For, it, it begins in the home, and it flows out of the context of the home, but it doesn't end there, brothers. So there should be a function of oneness even in that particular area as well, Okay. All right. Well, there'll be a part four next week, okay? Let me pray for us as my brother comes up. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause even now to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, among whom we are foremost of all. And Lord, He came to die on the cross and pay for sins, that by trusting in Him and in His atoning work, we can be reconciled to You, Father. We understand that. Thank You for the reconciliation that is found through Jesus Christ. But we also understand that the Gospel has implications for every aspect of our lives, including our marriages. And that in Your beautiful design, from before the foundation of the world, before any human being came into existence, marriage is to be a picture of Christ and His church. Marriage is to display the gospel, Christ and his people. And so, Lord, help us, give us grace to be able to do that. Father, we all fall short in this area, and the culture around us isn't helping. There are so many secular, anti-God ideologies out there about what marriage should or should not be, Lord, in our world. Lord, we need grace, and we need your power to help us overcome our own sin And Lord, the mindset of the world, help us to be shaped and informed by the gospel of your son, even these words of Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.